We have two scripture passages tonight, an Old Testament scripture passage, Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 through 16, Pew Bible, page 22. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May it enlighten us, Lord, to know the wonder of the Incarnation. God with us, Emmanuel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 16 uh, picks up the story of Hagar and Ishmael right after they were cast away from Abraham because um, Ishmael would not be inheritor of the promise and the covenant. Um, Hagar has fled into the desert and she believes that they're going to die of thirst and so she tells Ishmael to go away from her because she does not want to see the child die. And this is where we pick up the reading, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will, also, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now a child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Forget all the context I just gave, because obviously this is before that. Nonetheless, it will still serve. Now, our New Testament scripture passage is John, chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Pew Bible, page 1,645. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. It's a reading of God's word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're looking at Article 18 of the Belgic Confession, page 77 in the back of your green Psalter hymnals, entitled The Incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the way that Belgic Confession Article 18 reads. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. Therefore, that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets, when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his own only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant and became like unto man, really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities, sin accepted. Being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, without the means of man, that not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should, took both, should take both upon him to save both. Therefore we confess in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of Mary, womb of Mary born of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham and was made like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted, so that in truth he is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. And that's the teaching of the Belgic Confession. An old wise man used to illustrate the incarnational mystery in this way. A simple countryman was being shown a red glass bottle full of milk. And this elegant red glass bottle, they then asked him what was in the bottle. And he replied, wine, brandy, whiskey. And he could not believe it was filled with milk till he saw the milk poured out from it. The redness of the bottle hid the color of the milk. And so he said, it was and is with our Lord's humanity. Man saw him tired, hungry, suffering, weeping, and thought he was only man. He was made in the likeness of men, yet he ever is God over all. Bless forever. So our theme tonight is Christ came, body and soul, 
to save us, body and soul. We have three points tonight. First is promise fulfilled. The second is truly human. And the third is say no to Anabaptists. Just say no. All right, let's start with this first point. If you remember Article 17, which is often brought in correlation with Article 16 about election, the recovery of fallen man, we read, we believe that our most gracious God and his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence. It brings up garden imagery, right? Promising him that he would give his son, who would be born of woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. And that's Genesis 3, 15. Probably not spelling this right, but it's the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel. In our day and age, there's a, a strong, often in the way that we speak of things, delineation or division between Old Testament and New Testament, or even... Uh, the way we'd, we would think of it, Old Covenant and New Covenant. But in the very first chapters of the Bible, we read of this promise given by God. We're told that the seed of a woman, a seed of a woman would be born. And this seed of a woman would crush the, the head of the serpent, defeating uh, our great enemy, Satan. And so, then, in Article 18, we read, we confess, therefore, that God has fulfilled, filled full, brought to fruition the Proto-Evangelium, the, the promise, the first gospel given in Genesis 3.15 and 16 which he made to the fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his own only begotten and eternal son. What the first part of article 18 is telling us is that all of scripture is pointing to Christ. The coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. The coming of God into his very own creation. And that is exactly what happens. So this promise fulfilled is meaningful because it means that when we read that Christ entered into creation, it is the 
penultimate. It is the crescendo of all that what has come before is leading to. And all that's coming after is leading from. All of Scripture culminates in the arrival of Jesus Christ in the flesh. A promise that is brought all the way down through the ages. In fact, Article 18 says, To the fathers, so fathers, you've got patriarchs, you've got prophets, When he sent in the world at the time appointed by him as only begotten and eternal son. When you read patriarchs and prophets, what you should think is the entire New Testament. Or the entire Old Testament, pointing to this moment. The fulfillment of a promise. The coming of the creator into his own creation. Let's look at this second point because this is the one we're going to spend most of our time on. Truly human. Many of you might be wondering, why did I choose Genesis 16? Well, in a lot of Old Testament scripture passages, there's interactions with somebody called the angel of the Lord. And the word angel just means messenger. Often the angel of the Lord is the one that speaks to people in the Old Testament. Um, comes in human form. And here in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 and following, the angel of the Lord, we, we, we read, found Hagar near a spring in the desert, a spring that is beside the road. Uh, spoke to Hagar. And then in verse 9, we read, And the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress. And the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now a child, you'll have a son, you shall name him Ishmael, so on and so forth. And then we read, verse 13, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. But she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. El Shaddai is... The meaning there. So why do we read of the angel of the Lord, but then Hagar says, of the Lord who spoke to her? Well, many people, myself included, believe that this is a moment of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's important to establish that the Son of God existed before the moment of incarnation. Because incarnation means that something that existed before took on flesh. Put on flesh. And what we're talking about here is that the Son of God... The Word, 
who was with God and the Word who was God, was with God in the beginning, through whom all things were made, John chapter 1. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. This preexistent Son of God is the angel of the Lord. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, begotten, not made. And this is who enters into time and history. This is what Article 18, who, what Article 18 says, took on the form of a servant. This is what, who, Article 18 says, became unto, like unto, a man. Both of these scripture quotations from Philippians, that poem, Philippians chapter 2. Really assuming the true human nature with all its infirmities. With one very important exception. Without sin. Truly human in every single way except without sin. Now I know that's hard for us to fathom, but there was a point in time in history when humans lived on this earth and they were without sin. Adam and Eve. At a very short bleep of a moment where they were without sin. And so... Our common existence of struggling with sin, being fallen and broken creatures, ones who are corrupted and who have been depraved in every part of our, our lives, our minds, our hearts, our, you know, what, you know what I'm talking about, is a very common experience for us, but it's not natural to the human condition. It's not. But it feels that way now because of the fall. And so, for Article 18 to say that the incarnation means that Christ really assumed true human nature with all its infirmities, sin accepted, does not make Christ any less human. He's truly human. And when I think infirmities, I think people sometimes say that Christ get the common cold. I don't think there's any reason to say he wouldn't have gotten sick from time to time. Being sick is not a sin. It's a result of the curse. He would have gotten tired. Hungry. He would have suffered. Wept. I often think about The passage in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. They were walking all day, and John says something so profound. If you didn't think about it, 
you would read right past it. It says, Jacob's well was there, verse 6. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. This is the creator of the universe who holds the world together by the power of his word, who is the exact imprint of the divine nature, who it is in whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And he sat down at the well because he was tired. Jesus entered into humanity. The Son of God took on human nature, took to himself human nature. Being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without the means of man. And what this is saying is that what happened in the incarnation is not simply that God created Jesus fully formed in the womb of Mary and that there was nothing of Mary. That was a part of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Jesus' genetic makeup included his maternal connection to humanity. You can trace Jesus' lineage through real human people. Jesus has relatives, most likely, who are still alive today. Not because he had children, but because his mother had children. Brothers, sisters, cousins. Have you ever thought of that? Christ is truly human. And it is in the first chapter of John that we read of that connection between the divinity and the humanity. And we read those awe-inspiring words, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But the Belgian Confession doesn't want to stop simply there, at flesh, right? I'm struck often by the use of this dichotomy in the Heidelberg Catechism, body and soul, body and soul, body and soul. It's important also that we understand that Jesus did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul. 
that he might be a real man, for since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon him to save both. Jesus was truly human, both body and soul. What this is saying is that Christ's divine nature was not a substitute for a real human soul. It's not that on the outside, Christ was a walking, talking human being, but on the inside, he was nothing but divinity, divine nature. He also had a reasonable soul, a human soul. Christ was truly human. So that we could be redeemed body and soul. He became body and soul. This last part is basically just the polemics of the Belgic Confession. Anabaptists don't get confused because of the term Baptist in there, that these, um, these people associate uh, or have a connection to uh, our ba- most, of, most of our general Baptist brothers and sisters today, like missionary Baptists or Southern Baptists, or whatever that may be. There's much stronger of a connection with, uh, for Anabaptists with Mennonites, Amish, those kinds of people, okay? But at the time when Guido de Brie wrote the Belgic Confession, these Anabaptists were what you would call um, radical reformers. And just like in our day, those who were the opposition, the Roman Catholic Church, made no distinction between the radical reformers of the Anabaptists, who were essentially anarchists, who wanted to throw off all sense of authority, who were plunging all kinds of civilizations and societies into chaos, and uh, who were doing all kinds of strange and bizarre practices. Um, They were lumping these people in with the reformers, like those in the Belgic area, the, the Netherlands area, and so on and so forth. And so Guido de Brie writes this Belgic confession in a lot of ways in order to distinguish themselves from these radical reformers and to say, no, we are seeking reform in the church, but we're still in line with what is called uh, Catholic or uh, Orthodox Uh, historical Christianity. And a lot of people are shocked or surprised when they read Article 18 of the Belgian Confession because they had no idea that Anabaptists or some Anabaptists had such radical teachings like what is being explained here in Article 18. Article 18 says, Therefore we confess in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, 
that he's the fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, a fruit of the womb of, the, of Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah. These are all scripture passages that are meant to correlate Jesus' connection to humanity. Flesh and blood. From the fruit of the loins of David after the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of Mary, born of a woman, a branch of David, a shoot of the root of Jesse, sprung from the tribe of Judah. These are all connections that Christ has with humanity. Descended from the Jews according to the flesh of the seed of Abraham, since he took on him the seed of Abraham and was made like unto his brethren in all things. Sin accepted. Um, there are many types of heresies that deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of them is docetism. And uh, docetism is the idea that Christ simply looked human. But he wasn't. A lot of this gets picked up in the early church and Gnosticism. And the reason why there was a denial of Christ's humanity and Gnosticism is because there was this um, idea that everything that was fleshly, everything that was worldly, everything that was um, carnal was bad, inherently evil. And everything that was spiritual was good. And you see this uh, emerging in seed form in a lot of Paul's letters to the churches when he's saying, um, you know, you guys are saying you can do whatever you want in your body and it's not a big deal because this body is simply, um, you know, it's all flesh and it's all evil and it's disconnected from the spiritual, it's disconnected from the spiritual reality. Um, and what the Anabaptists taught was something akin to these things but had a very unique expression. Um, it's called the doctrine of heavenly flesh. And what they're trying to do is get away from the idea of Christ inheriting a sinful nature. And so if you think about the way that we inherit sinful, our sinful nature, um, I talked about it most recently in Genesis. What it looks like happens is that it's carried on uh, from generation to generation um, through the um, male part of um, that procreative act. But there isn't really any certainty. There's a lot of mystery tied around how that sinful nature is carried on from generation to generation. Um, and so if Mary had a sinful nature and she imparted part of her DNA to Jesus, then how could Jesus be born without a sinful nature? How could Jesus be born free of sin, that original sin? Well, um, Anabaptists were trying to seek to explain that, right? And in doing so, they emptied Christ of his humanity, his true humanity. And attempting to explain how Jesus Christ's two natures came to be, Minnow Simons, that's where we get the modern-day Mennonites from, and Dirk Phillips concluded and taught that Jesus did not derive his humanity from his mother Mary. This view is called the doctrine of heavenly flesh or incarnational Christology. In this view, they were dependent upon uh, another man called Melchior Hoffman, 
who probably was influenced in his view by Caspar uh, Schwenkfeld von Ossig. These names, I'm telling you. Hoffman wrote this. We have now heard enough that the whole seed of Adam, be it of man, woman, or virgin, is cursed and delivered to eternal death. Now, if the body of Jesus Christ was also such flesh and of this seed, it follows that the redemption has not yet happened. For the seed of Adam belongs to Satan and it is the property of the devil. Similarly, a minnow Simon, or minnow, uh, Simon said, In the same manner, the heavenly seed, namely the word of God, was sown in Mary, and by her faith, being conceived in her by the Holy Ghost, became flesh, and was nurtured in her body, and thus it is called the fruit of her womb. That same as a natural fruit or offspring is called the fruit of its natural mother, but it took none of her DNA, took none of her genetic makeup. I know that sounds like a really bizarre conversation, but that's what Guido Debris is denying, is in opposition to the Saying this, this, this kind of teaching, incarnational Christology, or the doctrine of heavenly flesh, is false. We call Mary Theotokos, mother of God, because she really is the mother of God. She took on, uh, she, she gave birth, born of the Virgin Mary, means she imparted to Jesus his human nature. The way we typically think of how a mother parts the child, human nature, as part of her genetic makeup. And this is deeply, deeply important because if Christ is not truly human, body and soul, then we are not saved, body and soul. What he did in his body this truly human body, was take upon it hell because we deserved hell for our sin. And what happened in the redemption of Christ's soul and the resurrection was our redemption and our resurrection. I know that the Belgic Confession doesn't always speak of the way that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of uh, our benefit. But Lord's Day 14 does say this. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? That he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God by my sin wherein I was conceived and brought forth. And one of the things that blows my mind about um, Christ's human nature is that understanding that Christ, even now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father, is human. What advantage is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he's our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Second, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he is as the head. He, as the head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. 
This is all grounded in the confession, the belief that we have in our hearts and say with our mouths that in God's desire to save us in the time, the appropriate time, Christ came body and soul to save us body and soul so that he in truth is our Emmanuel, that is to say, God with us. He came in the flesh to save us from our sin. This is a truth that we must cling to. This is a truth that we must protect. Because if Christ is not truly human, then we are still in our sin. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation that we received in Christ. And that we can call him brother. that he took to himself a true body, a true soul. That in his body and his soul, he redeemed our body and soul from our sin and from the judgment that we deserve because of it. Christ came and he was tired, he was hungry, he suffered, he wept. And many people looked upon him and thought he was only man. For he was made in the likeness of men. Yet, God, he ever is. The word of God, who was with you in the beginning, and who is God. We praise you that we have our flesh in heaven as our interceder, our mediator, our advocate. And as a promise that we too will be brought into your presence one day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.